bum bum bottom 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 bum bum
Cassandra Pop does sound like a villain name, and I <laughs> I sincerely hope that they're not secretly evil. Well, they're not billionaires. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, anyway. And it is nice to have a social media platform that came after comic book couples counseling. Yeah, yeah, where I don't have like 10 years of going like, what am I doing out here? Who am I? I know who I am now. I'm Lisa Gullickson from Comic Book Couples Counseling. What else are we thankful for? At the risk of our list of things we're thankful for being just a list of plugs, I am <laughs> very thankful for our upcoming screening of Howard the Duck in partnership with Film Club at the Alamo Drafthouse Winchester and Four Color Fantasies, our favorite Winchesterian book place of selling comics. <laughs> That's what it's called, Lisa. <laughs> uh, we actually went to Four Color Fantasies this past weekend. We met up with Eric. Who we're thankful for. We're, who we're super thankful for. We love for, this guy. And we're thankful that he's willing to do this screening series kicking off with Howard the Duck because as we learned this past weekend, he hates Howard the Duck. He does. Odds are though, so do you. So you can no longer use this as an excuse not to come because Eric's going to be there and I doubt you hate it more than him. I don't think our screening is designed as an in defense of Howard the Duck. <laughs> It's more of a conversation starter, and it's also, you know, the first Marvel movie that ever existed. And so we wanted to start at that marvelous beginning before jumping into other weirdo screenings like Friday Foster or Ghost World. But or also, whatever. yeah, I'm gonna defend Howard the Duck. It's a great movie. You're not gonna stop me. It's fun. It's cute. It's irreverent. One of my favorite Patreon episodes that we ever did was our celebration of Howard the Duck movie. And in revisiting it, I think we found a lot of good qualities that people tend to ignore because they just remember the stink of the bomb. Mm. But really, if I'm being honest, what I'm most thankful about our Howard the Duck screening is that it has kickstarted an artistic drive in Lisa mm. to do art again. And you have done a trilogy of album homages using Howard the Duck. So Howard the Duck in place of David Bowie, in place of The Clash, in place of Taylor Swift, Lisa. I think I have to throw partial credit to our Twitter community um, somebody reached out to me to collaborate on a secret project, which may never see the light of day. We do not know. Secret comics project starring Lisa. Not starring Lisa. Co-starring Lisa. <laughs> um, but that, by necessity, I had to do that on Procreate. And I discovered how actually uh, intuitive and easy Procreate is to use, which made me want to do some Howard the Duck posters. And now I'm just really, I, I, when I come home, the first thing I want to do is pick up my iPad and start drawing. Do you think you're going to do more Howard the Duck album homages? Homages? Um, That's hard to say. Like, um, my, my artistic skills are still like fairly limited and it's hard <laughs> to find ones where it's just like, okay, I just have to draw a duck. Cause it like, I can't draw people. I can't draw <laughs> motorcycles. Not yet. Not Maybe. yet. I don't know. You didn't think you were going to be able to do that clash one because that was a little complicated, but you knocked that out of the park. Oh, thank you. So Lisa, are you taking suggestions from our listeners? If they're like, do Abbey Road, will you do Abbey Road? Abbey Road would be hard because it's four people <laughs> and which means I would probably have to draw Beverly and yeah. that would be really hard to draw. Yeah. Beverly, uh, Tim Robbins' character, 
character and that crazy alien creature at the end all going across the crosswalk. I can give it a go if somebody insists. Yeah, I insist. But not if Brad insists. No, no. Because he loves me unconditionally. But you, the listeners, can insist, insist upon Lisa to do more Howard the Duck album art. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, I know what I'm thankful for. Oh? My brand new all-time favorite public access movie review show (laughs) co-starring two late Gen Xers (laughs) sitting on two red chairs. The B&B show on Prince George's uh, public access uh, community television. Yeah, I didn't know this was going to be a thing in my life, but Brian Young, the turtle dork, who you heard on our episode on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1990 movie adaptation, Mm -hmm. he invited me to co-host this show with him. And I was like, what do I got to do? He's like, you just got to show up. We're going to film you talking about some movies. I'll talk to. And that's what we did. And that episode is out there online. Links in the show notes. It's on the Prince George's County TV YouTube page. Of course, If you're in the Maryland area, the show will air on Comcast 76 and Verizon 42 in Prince George's County on Monday and Thursday at 6.30 p.m. and Saturdays at 11.30 a.m. I'm going to be on TV. (laughs) It's so (laughs) weird. I've barely watched the YouTube show. It's 30 minutes. I can almost not handle seeing myself in that frame moving. But... I used to not be able to listen to this podcast, and I've gotten over that uh, ego hurdle. So hopefully I'll be able to watch all 30 minutes of this first episode at some point. I am just so proud of you that you're doing this show with Brian, because I really do feel like this is the natural... You have to admit, this is fulfilling a childhood dream for you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I loved public access growing up. There's something really special about that format. Uh, You know, we're not Siskel and Ebert. Uh, We're not quite between two ferns. We're somewhere (laughs) in the middle. And I love, I love that vibe. And I I know we're just going to get better. Yeah. And I just got to say, I'm thankful for you, sweetheart. Yeah. You are my best friend. Doing this podcast with you is so fun. And it makes me excited to see what we're going to do next. Yeah. Well, what we're going to do next is talk about Fantastic Four Full Circle, <laughs> which is a comic that I am super thankful for. This is a book that I didn't actually think was ever going to happen. You may recall, like, over the last decade, there's been rumblings of Alex Ross wanting to, like, do this graphic reinterpretation of the Fantastic Four. And if you have the Marvelocity album, uh, that, that big coffee table book that he did, there's, like, six pages devoted to his idea of what he would do with the Fantastic Four. And when that came out, I was like, oh, I guess that dream has died. But no, thanks to Abrams Comic Arts... It's alive again, and it's got to be one of the best comics of the year. I think it's one of our ongoing themes in our Creator Corner conversations, like ideas that happen fast and ideas that happen slowly. Mm. Like, it makes me think about um, our conversation with Todd McFarlane and Greg Capullo, where they had been talking about doing this Spawn Batman book for years, and, like... Sometimes you just have to take an idea and put it on the shelf while other things happen. And then you never know when 
you can go back to that idea, blow the dust off, and make something that's amazing. And when you do, you have to do it quickly. Yes. <laughs> you gotta yes. get that idea done. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's um, truly inspiring to see someone like Alex Ross, to see folks like Todd McFarlane and Greg Capullo cultivate this idea and then let it go and, and not like you become tortured by letting mm -hmm. it go. I mean, I think that's just part of the process. You have to be okay with ideas dying sometimes, but just because they look dead doesn't mean they're totally dead. And when the publisher fires the go gun, that's the thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Firing the go the gun. starter pistol. <laughs> the starter pistol. When the starter pistol gets shot, then it's off to the races and you have to deliver on the promise of that idea. And Fantastic Four Full Circle definitely does that. It's like sourdough bread. <laughs> like I'm going to invite another an, a, another metaphor uh -huh, where uh -huh, you have uh -huh. this, like the starter is sitting on its, on the shelf and you could ignore the starter uh -huh. and just let the starter die, but they continue to feed the starter. And then like when it's time to bake the bread, you know, it's just a matter of hours and yes. you have to get the bread out of the oven on time. That's the better metaphor than my go gun. Yeah, 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 the go gun, <laughs> which you keep under your seat of the Fantastic Car. <laughs> yeah, that's where it is. Uh, but yeah, okay, all right, Fantastic Four full circle. One, it's this massive treasury-sized comic. Mm -hmm. It is the format that Alex Ross shines the most in. I need more books in this treasury format. Abram Comics Art puts out beautiful Crazy. physical media. Yes. I love holding this yeah. book. Yeah, they are quickly becoming one of our favorite publishers. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever they're at like Baltimore Comic Con or New York Comic Con, we make a beeline right to them. And we just like run our hands and fingers all over their like beautiful, beautiful books. Um, I gotta warn y'all, we come <laughs> into this conversation with Alex Ross Real hot. We just, right out of the, the go gun, we're like, this is a masterpiece. You are a genius. <laughs> we tell him that like six or seven times. Let us just sit at your feet and you can just tell us your ways. We're just going to bask in the glow of this Zoom room. What's also really lovely about this conversation with Alex is that it also operates as a second opinion to our previous Fantastic Four Sue and Reed couples session. That's right. When it comes to these two, Alex Ross is an expert. He's a love expert on Reed and Sue and has very strong opinions on them as a couple. What's great about talking to Alex Ross is that he is very literalistic in his art and in the way that he writes. Like, I, I say this in the in our interview, and, I, and I, I don't feel like I articulated it perfectly, but when you see Alex Ross's art, you go like, oh, well, he just took a photograph yes. of... Batman or Superman or the Fantastic Four. Right. And this is what they actually look like and everybody else is just doing drawings. Right. That's also the way that he talks about Reed and Sue and Ben and Johnny. Like they're real people. Real people right out of Fantastic Four number one. Right, which is how you approach comics. Yes. When we discuss these characters in our couple sessions, you don't want me to go into the editorial decisions. You just want to accept the plot as history. Yeah, because that, that is the way that they're intended to be read. I don't like the idea that this book is secretly about some information that we do not have access to as a reader. That being said, he does stick some little editorial Easter eggs in there as well, which yeah, we get yeah, to. Yeah, uh, this is also a celebration of Jack Kirby. Mm -hmm. And this conversation pairs really well with our conversation that we had last week with Bill Sienkiewicz, Ryan Silbert, and Luke Lieberman talking about Stan Lee's Alliance's Orphans. 
In that episode, we celebrated the big ideas of Stan Lee. And in this episode, we celebrate Jack Kirby's razor sharp execution. As big and broad as Stan Lee's ideas are is as specific and detailed as Jack Kirby's imagination is. His fingerprints really are the ones that are all over the Fantastic Four. He's the one who built the mechanism that moves the story forward. The look, how they function, how their powers work. How they interact together as mm. a family. Hopefully everyone has already read Fantastic Four Full Circle. It's widely available. It is a masterpiece. Get used to that word. Mm -hmm. You need to own it. You need to have it on your shelf or in your digital library. Although, again, the large treasury format, it is a book that you want a physical copy of. But hopefully you've read it. We are going to get into the nitty gritty of the story. What's cool about it is that it is a sequel to Fantastic Four number 51, This Man, This Monster. It involves the character of Ricardo Jones coming back from the negative zone and spewing out all these crazy negative zone creatures, causing havoc in the Baxter building and Reed and the gang going, uh, we better go investigate what the heck is happening down there. Back in 51... Ricardo Jones infiltrated the Fantastic Four by capturing and then presenting as Ben Grimm. But once he was in the Ben Grimm suit, I guess, in a way, he couldn't help but embody Ben Grimm's selfless heroism. Yeah, and he saves Reed Richards in the negative zone from perishing and supposedly sacrificed himself. So when he pops up in full circle, it's like, whoa, what the heck is going on? On. It's a great mystery. What I also really love about Fantastic Four Full Circle is that it is written by Alex Ross, mm -hmm. and he really does try to emulate the vibe, the tone of those Jack Kirby and Stan Lee comics, even through the dialogue. And I think he's incredibly successful. But just like his art, his emulation isn't something that's like dusty no. and old. It's like, uh, it's extremely vital and present. And uh, he's making like pop culture references. He's talking about Ridley Scott movies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the color, that pop art color mm -hmm. that he is slathering atop full circle. It's so my jam. <laughs> it's so Lisa's jam. It's my jam. It does place it in the era of the 60s, but I wouldn't say that this is a 60s comic. Mm -hmm. It's not like a, like a parody. No, it's a contemporary comic. This is in continuity with the Fantastic Four, set slightly in their past. And this might be my favorite reinterpretation or interpretation of Sue Storm totally. and how she functions within the context of Fantastic Four. I feel like a lot of other iterations of Sue Storm try to kind of move her away from the way that she was in those early Fantastic Four issues. But what Alex Ross does is not change the continuity at all, but instead celebrate and pull to the fore what exactly she offers to the team. Yeah, I, her power set in this book is essential, mm -hmm. but also her personality. Yeah. So I, I might agree with you that this is up there with my favorite Sue Storms. But I also like how when you have four incredibly powerful individuals on a team, 
somebody's always got to take the back seat. And in this <laughs> in this story, it's Ben. Uh, yeah, which is a little surprising. And we get into that with Alex. Our conversation begins us like heaping praise on him in full circle, being very, very fanboy and fangirly. That's okay. We're comfortable. We're vulnerable. But we're with you. You understand us. You won't judge us. <laughs> uh, and then we go into our opinions on Sue and Reed. And we, we talk about how like, in the past, on those Fantastic Four Sue and Reed CBCC episodes, it sparked a lot of conversation, a lot of arguments. And then Alex Ross is like, yeah, what do you mean? Let's talk about mm -hmm. that. And I was like, oh, I wasn't prepared to, <laughs> to talk about that with Alex. But then we do. And it's, yeah, th this, is this is a really special and cool conversation. And then we talk about the monkeys. <laughs> and then we talk about the monkeys. Because I cannot be contained. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait. I can't wait. But so, yeah, let's let's just get to it. Let's get to this conversation with Alex Ross. Alex, thank you so much for joining us at Comic Book Couples Counseling. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We are crazy excited to have you on the show. Uh, Fantastic Four Full Circle is a masterpiece. We're just going to put that out there right now. We love it so much. And we the Fantastic so Four is so special to us. Yeah, we've had many arguments about the relationship dynamics between Sue and Reed on this podcast. Really? Oh, can you give me an idea of some of what you said? Oh, well, you know, Reed so often comes off as dismissive of Sue, especially early on. She really is okay. the invisible woman. <laughs> and when you read those early issues, it gets your dander up a little bit. And then when you have creators who reinterpret that relationship a little bit, it can kind of frustrate us because we want it to be honest to the original, but also sometimes the original is really horrifying. I would love to start with your interpretation of Reed because in full circle, Reed is wrong twice. And that's like one of the things I love about Reed, like that he is a scientist and he is fallible and he makes mistakes and he's just like, well, you know, I was wrong on that one. And then, the, and then Ben's like, yeah. Yeah, you were. <laughs> yeah, you were. <laughs> Well, I do think there's some shades of gray in there. Like, uh, I think I know one of those instances you're talking about where there's the question of like what he had originally classified this Earth planet as. And mm -hmm. then he corrects it, which is actually me through Reed saying, you know what, what John Byrne had defined this area of this interface with this Earth as before. Um, well, I'm reclassifying that. And what I'm doing is saying, you know what? Jack Kirby had thrown out this idea about an alternate earth that goes through this different evolutionary path, uh, divergent from our own. So, you know what, let's go back to that idea. Whereas John had classified it as one thing in the eighties mm -hmm. and I'm going back to what Jack had postulated, figuring like, ah, well, you know what, there's more creative possibilities here. So let's go that direction rather than just saying, uh, no, that's just an interface to Earth. So that's one divergent thing. But what was the other one you you noted? Oh. Yeah, Lisa notes? has her notes. Um, I'm trying to think is... Well, I, there is his uh, new theory having to do with the negative zone, which isn't like something he's necessarily like a, a, an admission of wrongness. But, but it, like he has a, to evolve it. His, his um, mind is constantly like evolving. Where, where I feel like in the past, maybe he was like a little bit more set and stubborn. Well, you know what that relates to? Again, it's it's me putting my head in this thing saying that, you know what, what we know, of course, 
this fictional place of the negative zone is something where writers are adding to it whatever they want over time and defining it to reflect whatever things you want to make it represent, whether it's the alien worlds we visit within it or the particular aggressiveness of the stuff we've shown coming from it. So having Reed kind of say this, that the place itself seems to really deny traditional laws of science, not in a traditional sense of this is an antimatter universe. It's more like a potpourri of whatever science the given authors want to say. I mean, think about it. Jack Kirby, when he first establishes the place, he shows Reed wearing um, a, yeah. a helmet to go into it because you assume you have to bring your own oxygen into this space. Yet in the same story, the thing isn't wearing a helmet, so he doesn't need oxygen help. And then they later decide in their their forays into it when they show up, uh, and I don't need to cite the issues where this happens, but basically they just decide, ah, it's the team, they go off into this space and, hey, laws of science be damned, they're flowing through space without oxygen help, and there's wind, apparently, yeah. or, you know, you've got propellant and all this sort of stuff that can't exist in the vacuum of space. So he's sort of realizing, in effect, this is whatever subjective rules one wants to put to it. And in his own way, my closing bit with that book is citing something that I would do with the character rolling forward if I was writing the book, is Reed's beginning to realize parts of his universe, if not his whole universe, are governed by creative choices beyond mm -hmm. his own life. He's realizing his own existence as a character who's written. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's how the most brilliant guy in the Marvel Universe could realize what we are doing with him. Right. Oh, man, I love that. I love that. What I find fascinating, though, is as he is like struggling with these ideas, the person you give the last bit of dialogue to is Ben, where Ben's just like, can't you just enjoy a victory? Can't you just relax? Can't you just have a good day? And this story does spin out of what is probably the most famous, at least certainly in our household, the most famous Fantastic Four story, and certainly the most fa famous Ben Grimm story. And so you come from that place and you end with him what what why why that's the question <laughs> well if you think about it look at what i did in the story it seems like it's got a center point of ben Grimm as mattering so much but it's really me showing my obsession with reed richards as a sort of analog character from my own perspective and reed becomes the stand-in for the artist writer creating comics mm. so that's him as my metaphor whereas ben Grimm is kind of the personality of comics the charm of comics but he's really not the lead of our story he's more a voice that adds in some flavor but this is really a read story and i've i've felt when in identifying what i love about the ff it really, to the tradition of the 60s, where you had these certain kind of male leads who would dominate whatever the drama was, he is that traditional figure, and he is the lead of the book. He's the lead of this particular drama. He's who you're really following. He's who I identify with the most. And there's just the illusion I put forward that this is somehow a Ben story. Yeah. 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 I, I love that. And also, I love it as like the mirror 
to Jack Kirby because Jack Kirby always saw himself as Ben Grimm. So it felt like it was supposed to be a Reed Richards book, but then you always find yourself like, oh, I can't get Ben Grimm off of my mind. So like it, you being like the opposite side of that coin is just like so fascinating. Yeah. And the thing is, I think that Jack was putting so much of his personality, of course, into Ben, but the, the subconscious part that was driving the narrative was it was really him performing the story as Reed was Jack in truth. He was dominating more of the story. He was the driver of why things happened, what got built, what journeys they went into. I mean, discovering the negative zone. That's all Reed's artwork. He's like created a painting on the wall and that painting is a place you can jump into. And that's what Jack did as a job. It's just that Ben is the personality of the guy that, say he's reflecting the neighborhood that uh, Jack grew up in. That's mm. his personality, but it's not the soul of Jack. The Jack, soul of Jack is Reed. I love hearing you talk about your story, storytelling this way, because when I think about your art, like I go like everybody else is interpreting and, and drawing these iconic characters, but somehow Alex Ross got the camera and he's very literally like taking, it feels almost like you're taking like a literal photo of these characters that we love so much. And I love that you bring this kind of like literalistic approach also to your writing. Can you talk a little bit about your, your writing process? Well, when you say literalistic, what do you mean? Just taking it very seriously? Um, no, like where, where for you, it the feels like it's a documentary. Are, like the characters are literally true, yeah. which is how I read. Like you it know? feels like a documentary of Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four. Yeah. Oh, nice. I, well, that certainly is what I'm kind of going for and, and trying to capture things in terms of a mood that would seem to commune with that decade that mm -hmm. Jack was there to write these stories. And uh, it's important to note that even though you have creators who come in, create a bunch of characters, and then ultimately leave them to other hands, passing them along. When people like Jack or Steve Ditko contributed what they did to these primary characters, they did more than what a lot of other craftsmen have in history. It's similar to the newspaper characters where the particular creators stayed with it for years and years. So that 10 years, almost 10 years, 1961 to 1970 that Jack put in, is the most defining thing of those characters that despite all the phenomenal craftsmen who have come in since, they're only just adding or slightly turning the things that are established by that one person or two people. And you have to connect to that to fully understand or faithfully represent what that thing is that person gave, that there's no real reworking it entirely in your own way. It is that person's impression and you want to honor what they did with it. Right. <laughs> and it feels like to us with full circle, you are reaching back to the Kirby uh, Stan comics and saying, Let's take a look again at the genius that they put on display. Let's reinterpret it. Let's here's a graphic reinterpretation of that era, but it is something that has um, like it feels like the Kirby era as as much as it gets celebrated, the Fantastic Four Kirby era, it does feel a little forgotten by the modern reader in or not the modern reader, the modern creator. Like the newer Fantastic Four comics feel so far away from 
the Kirby era? Yeah, um, you know, the tough thing is, is that what I've learned by working in this business for over 30 years is that majority of the people making comics are in some ways the most disassociated from them. Um, the number of professionals I know and am in contact with are often the last people to read this stuff or purchase it. And to actually continually follow it as I do or reach back into the stuff that I've loved in the past, I'm not always finding like minds amongst my contemporaries that are doing the exact same work or connecting them that way with the material. I can ask a lot of the other pros I know, like, what are you currently reading? And they have no interest in what people are making now. Um, so it's a weird kind of disconnect of the history of there's those that really love what had been, there's those that are creating it now to reflect their own attitudes towards it, but they've got their own agenda and they're not necessarily wanting to reflect what is maybe the DNA of this stuff. And of course, I'm skipping over countless people who have done phenomenal work with sure. bringing their love for it in the same way. I'm not some sole individual who has yeah. the same feeling. Um, but I know that it's, it's tough for me when you think like, well, who else would you bring in today, say, as an artist that would commune with Jack Kirby's style? And there's not a lot of people influenced by it currently working. You know, there's a lot of older people who have been but not the 20-somethings who might be drawing comics at the moment or 30-somethings who are the main workhorses that are getting these books turned in. And it, it bums me out to think, well, if there's, you can get an artist who really will connect to Jack's style, eh, I don't know that there's anybody I can rightfully name right away that could do that. Just as an example of what you're talking about, like when you cherry pick arcs from like different eras of the Fantastic Four. Like we see the character of Sue like reinterpreted, like like the like the the initial idea from the 60s doesn't work. What I like about the way you approached Sue Storm in full circle is you are working with the material that was there from the very beginning and yet still bringing it to the forefront going like Sue has a ton to contribute. She's always had a ton to contribute. And it's just a matter of recontextualizing like her powers it like within the functioning. And of she's the essential to the story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's what, if you were examining how the actual uh, conflict that they had goes through, she is the only person whose powers really made a difference in each circumstance right. where if she wasn't there, none of this would have worked. And she has the most effective powers in the course of the story. But I also was trying to, in my use of her, do a conflict with um, previous writing approaches where there's so much focus upon a schism happening between mm -hmm. yeah. the yes. couple. I didn't want any of that. I wanted to show that she, she and Reed were very much on the same page. She had his back and he wasn't necessarily crazily doing stuff that, you know, like, oh, I just gave our son a, you know, a, Jeez, <laughs> uh, what was it? It was the equivalent of giving him. Um, what's it where they drill into the skull? Uh, uh, um, oh my gosh, it's a uh, a lobotomy. Whew. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. what happened in the early seventies, yeah. and then that provided the schism where she left the group, and then Medusa came in for yeah. a time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got these yeah. cycles where people love to write in the idea that they're on the outs. And I just think that's not what I want. And I don't yeah. think that's what was initially desired to show there's so much of that distress in the group. But even from 
this uh, original adventure I connect a lot to from where Jack had the three guys go into the negative zone where they first met Annihilus. She was back home having their first child. And the purpose of the adventure was to bring back something that could save her life from radiation poisoning she's experiencing in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to get to the point where, you know what, that's not the way you're going to write her or treat her off stage. She's got to be there. She's essential to the group. The four personalities need to bounce off of each other and only each other for this all to the dynamic to work. And that there's no real conflict with her. But also, I, if you notice from the origin, giving the uh, origin retelling from her perspective, it actually breaks the mold of saying, I shouldn't say that I broke the mold, but I'm kind of saying that, aren't I? Uh, it breaks the pattern. There you go. Going, well, it's Reed who did this to them, and it's Reed's responsibility for, you know, somehow making it up to Ben for what happened to Ben. Well, like, she's the one who called him a coward that flipped Ben into actually piloting the rocket. Yeah, Reed built the rocket. Reed's experiment of them going up into space was what. You know, it was that process, but she's the one that was so on board that she calls another grown man a coward saying, I wouldn't think you'd be a coward that you wouldn't take us up there. Like, and then that's the thing that gets the goat of Ben Grimm that suddenly now, well, damn it, he slams his fist down and I'm going to pilot that damn thing just to show you I'm no coward. And she would feel responsibility for that. She would feel the same thing Reed has felt all these 60 plus years of, you know, culpability in what had occurred that changed this one guy's life for the worse, you know? So I wanted to connect with that, not in the sense of she's got to have this dragging her down, but it's something that, why would she not acknowledge that? Why would she not feel that and show a similarity of sensibility to her husband? Yeah, in in some of the retcons, they go, oh, well, she was in space because she was a scientist too, or like she needs her own kind of, maybe she wanted to be an actress and she has her own, like, 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 uh, for a woman to have, to make a contribution, she either has to be a scientist or have a completely separate life from her family. And I, and I like the fact that you go back to the original idea of all four of them agreed to go into space. Ben Grimm, slightly under duress, you know, um, right. you know, he was peer pressured into it, but they all, they all agreed to go and they all suffered the consequences. Yeah. And I mean, obviously if you spend too much time in delving into the details, that's what causes you to have to go, what exactly was her job and what in the <laughs> world did brother there for? And yeah. yeah. To, then you were either up aging him to justify well, he's a grown man who has this ability and that's what that he gave to it. All those things is the modern era of where we keep rewriting the past with a sense of do a deeper dive into the details of it to explain it more. And if you've noticed any of the prior origins I've worked on, like the ones I've done at DC with Paul Dini, we actually do the surface skim details of what happens in these classic origins while doing a sort of intellectual dive without rewriting the past, without amending the details that were there. So if you take a new perspective on it, a deeper perspective, you can help to understand the core thing without having to suddenly decide, well, this person has to have a revision of their past details. And, 
you know, you don't need to worry about how is Sue there? Don't worry about it. It's not the most important issue. It's just important that all four of them were there. But the key thing of what was told is that there is this trigger that occurred that got the one guy involved where he was saying, hey, I'm worried about this. And then he got pushed over into joining. And then it led to an irreparable circumstance for himself. What I really enjoy about your work, and especially with Full Circle, is it feels like you go back to what makes these characters work and let's celebrate that. So you're like you're saying, you're less interested in, well, let's create conflict within the group because I think through serialization, writers eventually get to that because conflict is drama and blah, blah, blah. But what you're doing with Full Circle is the Fantastic Four work as the Fantastic Four. Let's see them operate as this unit. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why it couldn't really be done in the context of normal series because they were pushing for, in the recent iteration, to really up the level yeah. of engagement of the kids. And it's like, I, I'm very pithy when I say, like, what part of the number four do you not get? <laughs> yeah. you no, know, like, I like, I, I, I will always respect the era of the last 20 to 25 years where they brought in Valeria. Yeah, same. She's the daughter in some ways. She's the kid, the engagement of with the, the, the honor of feeling connected to a kid who really is Reed's daughter. And she's not super powered. She just is that brilliant mind. And then there, there's a, been a lot of really sweet comics conveyed with her involved there. But that is the relationship with the children. And that's got to be a subset to a, a subplot to the larger things that happen to the team. And I'm also thinking too much about the effect that what we create in the comics now has upon what Hollywood will next do with it. I don't want them to approach this team thinking, well, there's how many main players in the group you got to make accounting for? Six? Or is it eight now? Is it this many different people living in the household that you got to make room for? And suddenly they get corrupted by all these newer things that have just been added in that, and I hate to say the kids are newer things, but they kind of are. You need to worry about just these four characters in what you're going to adapt for larger media because the regular world, the normals as we might call them, they're still just getting used to these superhero concepts one by one. And you don't want to throw everything that's just been created over the course of 60 years at them all at once. You got to get to the core things first and promote those distinctively. And speaking of the core things, in your graphic uh, reinterpretation, you are tying it to the era in which these characters were created through the visuals, through your illustration, through the pop uh, era coloring that you have in this book. Uh, why is that essential uh, for you and the Fantastic Four? Uh, to try and make a case for connecting to the 60s without necessarily having to say it is of that era, because technically my book is most definitely current, even though I don't show teenage versions of the kids when I acknowledge them, I'm still saying they matter. They're a good addition. There's all this great work that's happened in this century. I don't want to deny that at all. I don't want a bearded read personally. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But I kind of like the beard. Me too. I like him. I like him a little scruffy. Yeah. Especially if he's tired. It's kind of sexy. I'm thinking of this certain archetypal lead guy that was in all those old dramas from the 60s. And 
that's not an era where you casually saw beards on men. Sure. Fortunately. I mean, it's the, the beard thing now is kind of a hipster thing. And that's, you know, there's somewhat of a Seattle vibe to that, that I feel when I see Reed with the beard now. Reed is a square. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Reed is the ultimate square. He's, he's basically one of those scientists that you saw in all the monster movies, of the fifties who would show up to figure out how do they defeat Godzilla? You know, that's who Reed is, that guy, that archetype. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So I, I would like now to get to like the, the emotional reasoning of wanting to adhere to these things, you know, like why is it important to you to do a graphic reinterpretation of the Fantastic Four? Why is it important to you to celebrate Kirby and bring Kirby into the light once again? Well, I mean, I, other than just sort of celebrating the greatest craftsman that this business has ever seen. Amen. In a way, it's sort of like the DNA of what makes me love comics. What I connect to so passionately is I am always looking back at that material. I regularly get the uh, Jack Kirby collector from Tomorrow's Publishing. And I'm one of those obsessives who continues to learn new things about this guy who, um, you know, his every effort is something I can take some inspiration from. He created half the characters that are the most important IP the business has ever seen. (laughs) And um, there's something just so electrifying about his work. And somebody like me is always driven by the sense of, well, I can bring in this sort of realism that will maybe connect and elevate the way these things are seen. But I'm always really chasing a ghost because my work can never compete with how perfect that work was when it was at its heyday, when it was just being done by Jack Kirby. There's no making art better than that. It's as pure and as true to itself as it need be. My thing is just connecting with people that don't connect with that. Maybe I can draw you towards it because of the way I interpret it. And hopefully I can get you interested in looking back at that work. But the the abstract ways in which Jack illustrated stuff and the eloquence of the way it was inked by the great men like Joe Sinnott, who had connected, you know, kind of put the sheen on it after the fact. It's it's just gorgeous to look back at that work and absorb it as some of the, the greatest popular art that, well, anyways, I'm going on and on about no, this. This is, this is what we're here for. One. <laughs> uh, uh, and two, with Kirby, you are, you're, it, it, you know, you're talking a little bit about how the Fantastic Four are possibly seen today by modern audiences and maybe studio producers. And Full Circle is, you know, a chance to um, go full circle. Well, to go full <laughs> circle to bring to bring the people who are making Fantastic Four comics, Fantastic Four movies back to Kirby and maybe even be a suggestion like where you could go with this IP. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I was thinking that I had an audience of one, it's one guy in California I'm hoping is reading my book and saying, oh yeah, maybe I should cast people that look like those characters the way they were designed. These days we have a lot of other reasons that they, um, they cast certain people. They're influenced by the comics from the last 10 to 20 years more than I think they ought to be. And I don't want to necessarily think that creators of my own time period have an outsized influence. 
in the way these things get shaped. I mean, we become somewhat of a delivery system for the way you can uh, envision a contemporary take, but contemporary is not necessarily better. In some ways you need to disconnect from all the stuff that we have of our modern culture and just get to the core of, can you adapt this thing in its purest state? And that's why creating a book like Full Circle is about creating a prototype for that. So do you feel like a creator on a mission? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've always felt like I can put forth a certain representation of this stuff. Like back when I was doing stuff, you know, well, now it's 25 years ago, uh, you know, what for Kingdom Come or some such book of mine that basically I wanted to connect people to the earliest version of Superman, to the Joe Schuster mm-hmm. art style for Superman. Um, and that would be the driving thing for me with so many of the, the characters I approached. I wanted to bring a love back to those core versions of things. And uh, I would feel sometimes like I was in a small community of people, not necessarily a community of one, but there was people like me that had this intellectual approach. We were trying to um, get the, the, the readers, get other artists inspired, other creators thinking about what maybe has been sidestepped over time, what details have been lost, what aesthetics things got sort of left on the table. In full circle, like one of the subtexts for Reed in particular is like, what is his relationship to his legacy like when janice is like taunting him he's saying i actually have the page open Bow. Oh, that- <laughs> <laughs> he he's saying like it's time to give up it isn't like your work isn't what it used to be like and the more you create like or the more you work the more disconnected we're going to be from that like you at your height do you have any personal subtext with those two pages well, you know, the weird thing is, is that as it's funny that I'm hearing that people think that was a personal reflection for me, which is fine. Yeah. But that was my meta moment that I thought was so obvious that it would barely get past my editors at Marvel. Mm-hmm. That a moment was not about me. It was about something that happened to Jack Kirby. Right. Yes. So Jack got a call in the mid 70s from a young editor who's still alive, apparently, um, not apparently, he's definitely still alive, but <laughs> not to be named, but apparently was having that exact conversation with Jack because the reactions to Jack's work in the offices at Marvel was extremely unsupportive of the things he did for Devil Dinosaur and Eternals and Machine Man. They just thought that, oh, God, your work looks so pathetic compared to what it was in the 60s. Have you ever thought about retiring? Maybe you should retire now because, you know, your legacy is going to look worse. This is a really awful person who has upset a lot of people in his history in publishing. But he I was thinking if I put this moment that I've been told about for 30 years into a a story where people would read it, they go, how did this happen? And of course, nobody has read into it that that was clearly me painting Jack Kirby. I mean, it the reason it shifts into a gray tone kind of photographic thing there is that that's Jack Kirby with a phone receiver next to his ear. That's Jack Kirby's hair. It's not really read. Right. But I thought that people would catch it and Dude. no one caught it. <laughs> I did not, but, but now damn, hearing I love about that. It, like, 
like even today in the comic book culture, like talking about Kirby can often be a little bit incendiary, a little bit triggering. You can, of like, we've gotten in some fights. Yeah, we've gotten in some <laughs> arguments. Uh, standing up for Jack. Do you think that that the uh, contribution conversation, the accreditation conversation, will ever be like resolved? In the comic book community, do you think that there is a happy ending for Jack Kirby and his legacy? Well, we've entered a new stage, if you think about it, where Jack's name being added to the credits for all mm -hmm. the characters that he co-created is now firmly there. And there's real money that goes to the family. Not that we have the details for it, just that we have kind of assurances coming from people in the know that like, oh, it was a good deal. Mm -hmm. So we have a sense of history being righted in that context, there's a lot more documentation that's been written in the last 20 years than ever before. That added to multiple interviews that existed from Jack's life. You know, he shouldn't be damned for the fact that he didn't live to a hundred to appear in countless superhero cameo movies, or movies that he could be cameoed in. That shouldn't be the thing that somehow wins out at the end of the day. But there is obviously a shared legacy of creator involvement between two men creating this stuff that he needs to be given his due of. And then there's the deeper dive of understanding the amount of work done by a guy who sat down and plotted out whole stories, created original characters, put them on the page, turned them in, and then someone else dialogued that. That's a different kind of creative slicing of the pie that needs to be appreciated by readers going forward. And we have long since exited the period where everything is defined by Stanley Presents. That's not the way the comics read currently. They haven't for a long time. It'll take a while to disconnect from the idea of like, well, I saw that guy in the movies and that's what all the actors have been told to respect. That's the guy who created all this stuff. Like, well, he partially did. He did to a point, but we need a greater breadth of understanding of the forces that shape this stuff. We need to understand that Ditko and Kirby are owed this debt, much like Bill Finger has been owed this debt. And for those of us that say we love this stuff and want to make this stuff with such passion, we need to identify the debt that's owed to those that came before. Because people like me, which is making up for a I'm representing a whole lot of the percentage of people making a living comics. We've made our bones based upon the work that these people laid out before I got in here in this business. You know, I have what I have because of the efforts those individuals made. Hmm. Yeah, very well uh, spoken. And it, all of that means a lot to Lisa and myself. Uh, I'd like to go back in time just a little bit. You know, comic books have been. Uh, with you since your early childhood and I'm, Jack Kirby was right there. Do you remember the moment in which you became aware of Jack Kirby's power or his importance? Mm, um, yeah, I would think it'd be before I was even 10 years old that, you know, I, I had gotten enough comics at that point to know he was the guy who was drawing this stuff earlier with earlier printings of uh, you know, everything that Jack had done in the 1960s was being reprinted in the 1970s. And it was all put out in brand new comics. So as far as you could know, as a young child, these were new until you were starting to pay attention to 
the fact that, oh no, these came before I was even born and now I'm getting these recycled adventures. And I was beginning to realize that probably between the ages of eight and 10, but I had been getting Jack Kirby's work either in reprint form or brand new comic form from the age of five on up. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I saw either stuff as early as 1963 from his earliest works in Marvel to, um, you know, stuff like his DC Sandman uh, from the 70s. Uh, or, you know, again, I loved everything he made in the 1970s at Marvel. All that stuff spoke to me. Um, but yeah, I was I was an early identifier, I think, of Jack's importance. And it would only grow for me over time. I mean, I've become a progressive fan where as much as I loved him in the past, I love him more now yeah. as I get older. I mean, that's certainly our relationship with him. You know, I, I think we always loved his stuff growing up, but it really wasn't until we were in our adulthood, well into our adulthood, where we started to go like, oh, he was even better than I thought. And that 70s stuff, you know, the devil dinosaur or turtles, the fourth world, that stuff that was so dismissed, like when when I was a kid and you you would talk about that stuff in the 90s, people would scoff at you. And now I look at it and go like, well, maybe this is some of his absolute best stuff. <laughs> I can tell you as an example of like, put us in the time and place. Do you remember the $6 million, million dollar man TV show yeah. had a slew of toys back in the seventies and I would have been the perfect target age for getting those things. So I had this figure that was based on the presumed villain of the show, a one-time apparent character called Maskatron. And when I had this toy in the late seventies, because I love the Machine Man comics so much, I did a custom job taking that doll, covering it with purple paper and imitating the look of Jack's design for the costume. And because he had uh, arms and legs that you could break off and whatever, I could make the character have the extended arms and technical virtuosity of what Machine Man could do, which was like a mechanical plastic man. Um, I was making my own Machine Man toy custom as a uh, probably 10 or 11 year old. So that's, that's what Jack's work was meaning to me in the earliest part of my life. And do you, you still have that machine man figure, right? Was No, it would have huh? been like paper. I take okay. here for a period of time. And then that was not going to last the ages. I think I've seen photos of it at the Winchester uh, art museum exhibit in Winchester, Virginia. You had like a big uh, show a few years back out there. And I, I think I saw photos of the, the figures you were making. Yeah, I mean, I did make a bunch of things out of paper that have lasted for, you know, 40 years. But uh, um, that particular one, I would eventually, dis you know, disassemble because I <laughs> at least I, I still have the pieces of my Maskatron doll, I believe. But that's not, not in its uh, machine man state. But um you know, that was the kind of thing I would do as a child, you know, turn my dolls into things from other movies or other comic properties that I wanted to have a toys of that didn't exist yet. I love the idea of like your Fantastic Four full circle be and your entire career actually just being a love affair that you started as a child where you're like, I love this so much. Uh, this is going to sound filthy. I love it so much. I want to get in it. You know what I mean? I want right, to, yeah. I want to touch all the things. I want to play with all of the toys and all that stuff, but you really come from like 
a place of like reverence and fandom and like uh with fantastic four full full circle it's it's uh kind of like coming full circle with you like as a child fan uh can you speak to that a little bit of like what would the little boy who's making his toys out of paper think about okay and now you have this you have this amazing career and this amazing book well the weird thing is that little boy would have expected exactly this of me you know, that's what this little boy was looking towards is having the career that I've been able to enjoy. Now, that would have been a big ask for that little boy to think it could turn out as fortunate as it has for me. So I'm just really effectively you're talking to a lottery winner when you talk to me. Yeah. You know, things worked out so well, but they just as easily could have not worked out as well. I could have had art styles that just didn't connect with those that will pay you to make comics and so I know plenty of adult professionals who didn't necessarily find the same fortune as I've had, um, who still just want to connect with that inspiration that has guided them their whole lives. I'm one of those lucky few where I've gotten a chance to touch virtually everything property-wise that touched me as a child. And I mean, in the best way. Um, <laughs> so, and, and the things that gave me the most passion are the things from print, the things of the superheroes of my childhood, those DC and Marvel characters that I adore so much. Before we let you go, like, I don't want you to think that I don't have an agenda because I do. And okay. that is, um, was it two years ago? It might be three. It's it like pandemic, pandemic time math is hard for me, but you did a monkey's print yeah. of the first season, like I am an enormous monkeys fan. I come from like the nineties generation of monkeys. Like when it came in at Nick at night, it was like, like that was like my backstreet boys. That was my sync. I was like, no, True. I want to go back in time. And I want to marry Mickey Dolenz. And that, that dream has, that's a, a dream has not yet come true. He's the only one left though. It could happen any day now. Um, <laughs> I'm not at all worried. And, and I was just wondering, were you ever planning on doing a season two version of the monkeys with Mickey with the curly hair? <laughs> That's so funny. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, I did make two prints with them. Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. I just want to make sure you're aware of, I did the red one and then I uh -huh. did the blue one. Yeah. Um, no, I, I hadn't thought of anything. I mean, it was very special that when I got to create art with them, that the, what was then three living members were around to give their approvals mm -hmm. and everything flew right through with, um, was that shop factory? I yeah. Think yeah. Their, their product for them. Um, no issues with them at all. It was just glorious that, yeah, it was it was a breeze. I mean, I'm fortunate that, of course, I got to do stuff with the Beatles, and that's working with their representation. Uh, and technically, I guess, you know, people representing the two living Beatles are judging everything as well as, I was told, everything is being seen by Ringo Starr, apparently. Um, but, um, and I know about specific comics that the comments that came from the widows and those were, you know, con constructive. Um, but um, yeah, in the case of the monkeys, that was just such a, an easygoing thing. And uh, yeah, I feel very, very privileged that I got the chance to connect with them in the last 10 years. Um, but no, I had no, <laughs> no plans, but I'll keep that in mind for Please the curly haired version of Mickey that. Uh... <laughs> Particularly. Like, uh, I think that they're all at their peak hotness in the monkey's paw episode. If you need, like, a, I know that you work from references and the, the monkey's paw episode from season two is my personal favorite. 
monkey's plot? Paw. The monkey's paw. The oh, one where Mickey Mickey uh, uh, buys a monkey's paw af- off of a magician and uh, he loses his voice. A great episode. Highly recommend. Okay. I'll take a look for that. Thank you. <laughs> I am brave, so I'll check it out. Whenever we go to a comic convention, Lisa's in the Dell comics bins yeah. looking for monkey's comics. She's collected all of them but one. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still because I want to find it in person. I don't want to buy it. on. It's not the, there's no romance on going on eBay and buying it directly. I want to find it. I want to find it doing this. We'll have to describe that later. Audibly flipping flipping, comics. flipping yeah. is how I want to find it. <laughs> well, I do have a set of the uh, the dolls that they've made of them recently. The uh, well, figures toy.com dolls. They may yeah. have. We have yeah, them also. Wall over there. I also have the bobbleheads, which are really cute. Oh, those are very well done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and indulge oh. us in our monkeys fandom, Lisa's monkeys fandom. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to chat. Fantastic for full circle. Like we said at the beginning, we think it's a masterpiece. It's one of our favorite comics of the year, one of our favorite comics of the decade. And we agree it's... that the peak number of any group is four, whether it's the monkeys, Fantastic Four, absolutely, the Beatles as well. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the comments. Uh, so our, for our listeners, they're going to have links in the show notes where they can find you online. But do you want to promote anything, promote any social media? Obviously, you're promoting Fantastic Four Full Circle. Oh, wow. Um, as or I catch myself uh, unprepared. Um, follow me wherever my social media exists. Apparently, I have some. Yes. Type <laughs> Alex Ross into that social media platform. You will find Alex Ross. Yeah, I, I technically am not on social media, but I have social media because I have an agent and people and doing things. So I am ill prepared to speak about such links in the show notes. We can Google. We'll find you. We'll find (laughs) you. Alex, thanks again. You have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much. And there you go. Thank you, Alex Ross, for coming on Comic Book Couples Counseling. Isn't he just the sweetest, warmest guy? Yeah. Like when you go to conventions and you see his booth, it is intimidating. It is so austere. You feel like you're like walking into a museum. Totally. You're like, uh, like the people who work there are in like business suits. Yes. And and you're you're just like in your con gear, feeling like a yeah, like a rube. How did we stumble into this place? And so you start (laughs) to get like this idea in your head of what Alex Ross would be like in a conversation. And this is not the conversation I was expecting. It was, you know, I was expecting a great chat. You know, I was was expecting a lot of Jack Kirby celebration, but I was not necessarily expecting the chat that we got. Yeah, like he wasn't like sweatpants mode quite, but he was definitely like wearing a pair of jeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this was truly, truly special. I loved the moment in the conversation where we were talking about what if Kevin Feige got this book Mm -hmm. in his hands and how... Alex was like, no, 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 that is my mission. (laughs) Like in a lot of ways, I made Fantastic Four full circle for one person. And that person is Kevin Feige, because this is what I want for the Fantastic Four. We've had interpretations of the Fantastic Four on the silver screen. They have been uh, not great. Lacking. (laughs) They have been lacking. And it's so important that we get the proper version realized. It means a lot to Alex Ross. It means a lot to Lisa and myself. And this is like his um, Bible for that. Alex Ross comes at this story 
like a fan. Yes. He goes like, he, he goes like, I'm not going to change anything. I'm going to work with what is already there and extrapolate on that. And it makes a really compelling narrative. You know, every creator is different. Um, oftentimes though, when we speak to comic book creators though, they are not necessarily up to date mm -hmm. on everything that's going on in the comics publishing field. You know, they don't like, you know, and, and that's understandable because you don't want to get distracted by other people's ideas. You need to create in a bubble so that you're not like, you know, ripping people off possibly yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or being uh, uh, what's the derivative? Word? Not derivative, but sometimes you'll read like a comic. You're like, God damn, that's so good. What do I have to offer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why should I even bother? <laughs> so it's best not to read them. But Alex Ross is the type of creator who lives and breathes the Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. He is a fanboy and proudly so. It's just fascinating to me that his art brain works the same as his writing brain. Mm. Like where his art is so reverential and mm. realistic yeah. and literalistic. I keep going back to that word. But like his writing is that too. Yes. He's, he sits, he's thoughtful. He goes, what is what is here and how do we how do I make it real? I just think it's like an extension of his hyper capability. And his fandom. Yeah, yeah. It's a perfect marriage. And that's how you get a masterpiece mm -hmm. like Fantastic Four Full Circle. That's the last time we'll say that word here. We are so thankful to Alex Ross for coming on Comic Book Couples Counseling. It really was a dream. And I won't shout them out here on the podcast, but it also required a lot of folks behind the scenes to make this happen. This is a conversation that's been months in the making. It started at San Diego Comic-Con and it finally became a reality now here on Thanksgiving. And this is a joy. Yeah. But the year ain't over and we have more episodes already in the can. We are currently working on our third Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles couple session series. We will be covering the Archie comics era, specifically the Dreamland storyline. And Lisa's read it. I've read it. You all need to read it. It's wild. It's weird. Yeah, real weird. And we'll be talking sibling dynamics from the perspective of Don Hubner's book, The Sibling Survival Guide, Surefire Ways to Solve Conflicts, Reduce Rivalry, and Have More Fun with Your Brothers and Sisters. And our next Creator Corner conversation will be with Elisa Quitney talking about her new book from Ahoy Comics, Guilt, which stands for Guild of Independent Lady Temporalists. And we love that comic. And since back in the 90s, she was one of the assistant editors of Sandman. Oh, yeah. We get a little Sandman talk in there as well. We could not resist. How effable is Morpheus? Yeah. We get into it. And I'm not talking about that effable. I'm talking about that effable. <laughs> not E-F-F-A. No, no, it's it's effable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I use some barnyard language. Ooh, risque. Shoot, I think I left my purse in the negative zone. Oh, Where no. can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Oh, we're out of here. It's time to go. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. If you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan on Twitter. 
They're both also on Hive. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram, Twitter, and Hive. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Hive Social at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Do you think folks will be able to hear at any point that horrendous leaf blower outside our apartment? I hope not. Oh man, my purse is full of demons. <laughs>